0: Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. My name is Joseph Toscano. Look, the next two programs will be pre-recorded. I am somewhere sleeping. So don't expect analysis of what's happening. You won't get it. This week, we'll be looking at the and Minnawea Hina Saga and your participation in that saga on the 20th of January. And next week, on New Year's Eve, no, we are not going to review the year past. What a waste of time. Next week, we'll be looking at all the projects and plans we have in place for 2016. Lest we forget. At 8am on Tuesday, the 20th of January, 1842, over 5,000 people, a quarter of Victoria's white population, gathered at the outskirts of Melbourne, crowding round the gallows erected on a small rise east of Swanson Street and north of La Trobe Street. The crowd, in a carnival mood, had come to see the public execution of Tanaminawai and Maubohina, the first two people. Executed in Victoria. What's in a name? Minaway, the son of Ki Gurhin Bohina, was born on Robbins Island in Tasmania in 1812. He is also known as Pivay, Napoleon, Jack of T- Cape Grim, and Tanaparaway. When he was born, European sealers had been hunting elephant seals and kangaroos on Robbins Island in northwest Tasmania for the last eight years. By the time he had turned thirteen, nearly all the elephant seals and kangaroos on the island had been wiped out. One year later, in 1813, the Tasmanian Land Company moved onto the North West Tribes land, establishing sheep stations at Circular Head and Cape Grim. On the 27th of November 1827, an Aboriginal came across sheep and several shepherds at Cape Grim. The meeting ended in disaster for the north-west tribes when one Aboriginal man was shot dead and one shepherd was wounded in the scuffle that developed when the shepherds attempted to entice the Aboriginal women into their huts. A few days later, the Aborigines drove a mob of sheep to their deaths over the cliffs at Victory Hill in revenge for the Aboriginal man's death. Six weeks later... The shepherds ambushed a group of Aborigines mutton-birding, killing 30 men, women and children. They threw their bodies over the same cliffs, giving Cape Grim its name. The North West tribes continued to suffer at the hands of the sealers and shepherds. Aboriginal men were shot on sight. Women were kidnapped and taken to the sealers' camps on Kangaroo Island in southern Victoria, where they were forced into sexual servitude. Within five years of white... Colonization, only sixty of the five hundred members of the Northwest tribe had survived the onslaught. In june eighteen thirty, George Augustus Robinson, the chief protector of Aborigines in Tasmania, reached northwestern Tasmania. He was attempting to round up the remnants of the three tribes of Tasmania and resettle them on an island off the north coast to prevent them being exterminated. The only Aborigines in Northwest Tasmania he had came into contact with were six abducted women and one abducted man, an eighteen-year-old youth who had been named Jack of Cape Grim. He forced the sealers to give up the Northwest tribe Aborigines by threatening to prosecute them for shooting their husbands. Robin persuaded the Aborigines to come with him, promising they'd be able to return to their tribal lands. Tannaminaway Tuna- escaped from Robertson a few months after his initial capture, because he realised that Robertson had no intention of returning him to Robbins Island. He was recaptured by Robertson soon after and became part of the group that accompanied Robertson in the search for the Big River people between October 1830 to January 1831. Tanamue developed a long and complex relationship with Robertson, and in October 1835, he accompanied him to Flinders Island. Robinson held Tanamiwa in high regard and spoke of him as an exceedingly willing and industrious young man who was stout and well-made, of good temper, and performed his work equal to any white man. Morboy Hina, Robert Smallboy, Jemmy, Timmy, Tinny, Ginny, Jimmy, Robert of Ben Lomond and Bob were some of the European names Morborhina was known as. Morbohina came from one of the inland tribes that had lived on the Ben Lomond highlands. He came into contact with Robertson as a relatively young man and the early 1830 accompanied him, his party of white assistants and the five survivors of the Bruni Island people, Wurriday, his two sons Peter and Davy Bruni and two young girls, Dre and Paggaree, on the difficult journey from the, along the West Coast to help persuade the West Coast guerrilla bands to lay down their arms and move to Flinders Island. more was also part of Governor Arthur's infamous Black Lion Campaign that was conducted later that year to drive Tasmanian Aborigines away from the settled areas. more joined the, the dynamic leader of the Stony Creek tribe, Kanaha Alinga, Umara, and Tanu Inuwe in October 1831 to find the Big River tribe and force them to join Robertson's group. In 1832, Morbohina accompanied Robertson on his second foray down the west coast. In 1835, Robertson boasted the entire Tasmanian Aboriginal population had been removed to Flinders Island. He received a reward of a £1,000 for his services to the government. The 33-year war between the European colonisers and the Tasmanian Aborigines was finally over. Over 10,000 Aborigines had lived in Tasmania when Europeans first colonised it in 1803. By 1835, less than 350 had survived the Holocaust. Three quarters of those who were transferred to Flinders Island died within two years. Only 89 Tasmanian Aborigines were left when Robertson decided to offer his services to the New South Wales government. The Tasmanian government, keen to see the back of the last Tasmanians, offered to bankroll his generous offer as long as he was allowed to take all the Tasmanian Aborigines that had survived the European Holocaust to the mainland. Move them out! George Augustus Robertson had Big plans for himself and his Aborigines. He never had any intention of returning the survivors of the 33-year Holocaust back to their tribal lands. Robertson wanted to use his domesticated Aborigines to civilise the mainland blacks. Even before John Batman set up his illegal settlement at Port Phillip Bay, the Governor of Diemen's Land, Sir George Arthur, wrote on the 27th of September 1835 to the Colonial Office in England, informing them that Robertson was willing to take the Aborigines from Flinders Island to the newly established settlement at Portland Bay on the Australian mainland to open a friendly communication with the natives there. The Tasmanian authorities, keen to deport the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, even offered to pay for their maintenance in New Holland. The New South Wales Authority strongly opposed the deportation of the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Australian mainland, although the British colonial office was in favour of the move. Governor Arthur highlighted that the deportation of the last surviving Tasmanian Aborigines to Flinders Island had greatly increased the value of crown land in Tasmania And he believed Robinson could, using the same tactics he used in Tasmania, do the same for the value of Crown land on the mainland. A British House of Commons Select Committee in 1837 recommended that a protector of Aborigines be appointed at Port Phillip because of the numerous reports of atrocities that were being committed by the new settlers against the Aboriginal population. Governor Arthur and the new Tasmanian Governor Franklin lobbied to have Robinson take up the post of Chief Protector at Port Phillip. Governor Franklin highlighted in August 1838 that life would be safer for the Port Phillip settlers if they had allowed Robinson to bring across the Tasmanian Aboriginal survivors from Flinders Island to Port Phillip because of the mixing of domesticated blacks with the less civilised tribes at Port Phillip would make them less dangerous. He repeated Governor Arthur's offer to pay for their upkeep at Port Phillip. A New South Wales Legislative Council committee headed by the Anglican Archbishop of Australia claimed in 1838 it would be a serious mistake to let the Tasmanian Aborigines in the mainland because of the risk of violence, rape and murder. The committee was concerned the lessons the Tasmanian Aborigines had learnt in their 33-year war against the white colonisers would encourage the local Aborigines to do the same fierce and hostile deportment towards the settlers. The Legislative Council Committee suggested that the Tasmanian Aborigines were civilised they could be set free, not deported to the mainland. On the 12th of December 1838, Robertson was appointed Chief Protector of Aborigines at Port Phillip. He was allowed to bring one family of Tasmanian Aborigines with him to act as his personal attendants. The move. Sir George Gipps, the Governor of New South Wales, made it clear to the Colonial office in England that he did not support Robertson's plan to bring across the Tasmanian Aborigines to Port Phillip. He only allowed Robertson to bring one family with him to act as his personal attendants. Robertson, full of his own self-importance, brought 16 of the surviving 89 Tasmanian Aborigines with him to Port Phillip. Governor Gipps informed Robertson that the New South Wales Government would only provide rations for a family of four. Robertson and the 16 Aborigines from Flinders Island arrived at Port Phillip in January 1839. He intended to use the Tasmanian Aborigines as mediators and educators. Even a man as hardened as Robertson was shocked by the disease, destitution and wretchedness displayed by the Port Phillip Aborigines who were living on the outskirts of Melbourne. Robertson wanted Victorian Aborigines to be able to continue to live on government-owned remnants of land in the districts they had traditionally lived on. The chief protector introduced the Tasmanian Aborigines to the Yarra tribes almost as soon as he arrived. He noted in his diaries their reception was of the utmost friendly character. James Dredge, William Thomas, Edward Parker and Charles Seawright came to Australia from England to take up their positions as assistant protectors. The assistant protectors set up their tents on an old Aboriginal camping ground on the south side of the Yarra. Robertson moved into an abandoned police hut and the Tasmanian Aborigines had to build grass shelters for themselves. The party organised a great feast in February 1839 to which all the Port Phillip Aborigines and Melbourne's town folk were invited. Beef, mutton and bread were supplied to everyone. The Aborigines initially refused to eat the food prepared for them because they were concerned they would be poisoned and poison was liberally being used by the squatters to solve their Aboriginal problem. Games and competitions were held, and fireworks were set off to show the Port Phillip Aborigines the protectors had come with good intentions. The Aborigines mistakenly assumed that they would be supplied with free rations and goods to compensate them for their loss of their lands. Governor Gibbs, Gibbs concerned about the cost involved, complained to the Colonial Office. He severely limited the rations that could be given to Aborigines after October 1839. Assistant Protectors Deployed George Augustus Robertson had four assistant protectors to help him ameliorate the lot of local tribes in the face of introduced disease, the ravages of alcohol and tribal warfare, interracial massacres and poisonings. The Chief Protector of Aborigines was expected to do his job because Despite overtly hostility from white settlers and the press, and very little financial support from the Sydney Treasury, when Robertson arrived with sixteen Aborigines from Finders Island, no government supplies were allocated to the Aborigine for the Aborigines. Some months after their arrival, Superintendent Latrobe provided rations to four of them. The Australian Aborigines, the Tasmanian Aborigines, were expected to look after themselves. Robertson's four assistants had been appointed by the British Colonial Office. None had been to Australia before. Charles Dredge, Edward Parker and William Thomas were Methodist school teachers. The fourth assistant, Charles Seavright, was a former military officer who had been forced to sell his military office to pay off his gambling debts. On the 26th of March 1839, after the new assistant protectors had had familiarised themselves with their positions. They were allocated areas of responsibility by Robinson. Dredge went to north-east Victoria, Park to the Northwest, west Steve to the western district, and Thomas was responsible for Melbourne and Western Port. Sieverite was shocked to find that on his first journey to the western districts, two stations he visited, two squatter stations he visited, had Aboriginal skulls placed over the doors as a warning to any Aborigines that came to the station. Robertson was more interested in creating an empire for himself than taking interest in the plight of the Aborigines he was employed to protect. Faced with hundreds of Aborigines camped around Melbourne, many of them dying from typhus fever, dysentery, syphilis, pneumonia, the cold and famine, Robertson lost interest in the plight of the 16 Aborigines he brought across with him from Flinders Island. Some were loaned out to work for Robertson's sons, others were expected to look after themselves. On the 2nd of October 1840, the New South Wales government released Robertson from any responsibility for the Tasmanian Aborigines he had brought to Port Phillip. The Mile Creek Massacre. In June 1838 at Mile Creek, north of Sydney, 28 Aborigines, mainly women and children, were tied up and hacked to pieces with swords. The dismembered bodies were partially burnt. Seven assigned convicts were brought to trial for the massacre. They were acquitted by a jury after 15 minutes' discussion. The Anti-Slavery Society in England and the Aborigines Protection Society in London were disgusted by the massacre. The trial and the comments made by the jurors involved in in the case. I look and the blacks as a set of monkeys. And the earlier they are exterminated from the face of the earth, the better. An active Aboriginal's Protection Society in London and a sympathetic clan administration in England forced New South Wales Governor Gipps to hold a retrial. After the second trial, the assigned convicts working as shepherds were found guilty, though were hung soon after. The second trial on the eighth of december eighteen thirty eight, on the 18th of December, 1838. Interesting, their masters, the squatters who ordered the massacre, were never questioned, charged or brought to trial for ordering the massacre. The seven assigned convicts were executed to keep the colonial office off the New South Wales government's back. In May 1839, Gipps, the New South Wales governor, who was also responsible for the newly established Port Phillips settlement, declared... In the Government Gazette, he wanted to bring the settlers and the Aborigines to equal and indiscriminate justice. Any of the seven assigned conv- convicts in Sydney in late 1838 and Governor Gipps' announcement five months later caused consternation among the Port Phillip settlers. The Port Phillip press funded against pseudo-philanthropists who didn't know what they were talking about. The open warfare that had been occurring between Aborigines and squatters in the Port Phillip region and the rest of Victoria became a secret, covert war of destruction almost overnight. Nobody talked about what was happening. Bodies of Aborigines with gunshot wounds were dismembered and burnt. Robinson's assistants, protectors were shunned. William Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, reported that the squatters and their shepherds were incensed about the Sydney hangings. Thomas reported that poisoning had become the favourite weapon of the coloniser and the blacks stopped accepting flour, milk and bread from the squatters because of their fear of poisoning. The local Aborigines now found themselves in an impossible situation, driven from their lands at the point of a gun, concerned about the very... Real possibility that the provisions that were being offered to them by squatters and assistant protectors alike could be poisoned, and unable to hunt and gather food on their traditional lands, many died of starvation. Those like Tullamarine and Jinjin, who stole potatoes grown in South or killed sheep to survive, were treated as criminals. The lucky ones, like Tullamarine and Jinjin, were arrested. The unlucky ones were legally hunted down and slaughtered. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. The Van Diemen's land's Aborigines were of little use to the Chief Protector, Robinson. Morbohina and Walter Arthur were sent to assist white explorers to trek to South Australia. woroday and a few of the older men were sent to work on Robinson's son's properties. He found the women hard to handle. They absconded on a number of occasions and had to be recaptured by Robinson. In August 1840, Superintendent La Trobe, concerned about Robertson's capacity to deal with the local Aborigines, asked the New South Wales Governor to relieve him of the responsibility for the Van Diemen's Land's natives. He was officially relieved of any responsibility for their care on the 2nd of October 1840. Left to their own devices, they tended to gravitate to the Western Port region, where Thomas, the assistant protector for the Melbourne region, had been sent to set up a blacks camp to distribute rations to encourage the hundreds of blacks that were camped around the settlement in Melbourne to move away from Melbourne. It is known that Isaac, one of the 16 Van Diemen's land's blacks, was in early 1841 going round the Western Port region telling the settlers to arm themselves as five black fellows were coming down to cause mischief. On the pretense that they were going to join Thomas's camp, Tanaminoway and Morbohina, Putirana, Traganini, and Planobina, five of the original party of 16, vanished into the western port bush by August 1841. Planobina and, and Tanaminoway, Planobina was Tanaminoway's wife. Morbohina was involved in a relationship with Traganini. William Thomas, the assistant protector's oldest son, wrote in his private journal, he, Jack of Cape Grim talked about what they had suffered at the hands of the white man, how many of their tribe had been slown, slain, how they had been hunted down in Tasmania. Now was the time for revenge. They were not cooped up in an island, fl- Flinders. They had unlimited bush to roam over at their will. This little band of two men and three wi- women were familiar with the white man's ways. They knew how to use firearms, they knew how to survive in the bush. It was since six years since Melbourne was formed. Over 8,000 white settlers lived in the new town. The local Aborigines had to a large degree been subdued and posed little threat to settlers in Melbourne. In October 1841, fear and trepidation swept through the town as the, as the exploits of the Tasmanian blacks became known. Many of the settlers had come to Melbourne from Tasmania they were aghast. Their old foes, the Tasmanian Aborigines, who were only defeated after a 33 year brutal and bitter struggle when Aborigines were legally shot on sight, were mounting a determined resistance to white settlement on the outskirts of Melbourne in Dandenong and the Western Port region. From little things, big things grow. In 1840, the Dandenongs and the Western Port region were dense bush. The stations set up by the squatters were established in clearings they had hacked from the scrub. The Tasmanian Aborigines began their campaign in the Dandenong region. They robbed Mr Horsefall, a squatter living in the Dandenongs, of his fowling piece. Walking up to 30 miles a day to evade capture, they robbed a number of other stations. They mainly stole firearms, sugar, flour and tea. The firearms were collected... They collected were much more than, than they could use themselves, considering they were trying to move quickly through the bush to evade capture. It is highly likely they were collecting firearms to distribute to the local Aborigines. It is recorded their first attack against the squatters was conducted with the help of local Aborigines. The main Aborigines raided the hut of Mr. Watson, the overseer of a small open cut cliff face mine at Cape Patterson that had been established to provide coal for Melbourne. Following their normal practice, they sprayed they spared the women in the hut, ordering them into the bush, stole guns and ammunition, and then set fire to the hut, ensuring that it couldn't be used by the squat settlers in the future. On one of the few occasions when they didn't get away without exchanging shots, the hut's overseer and his son in law, Walter Iman, began shooting at the party. The Aborigines fired back, wounding Walter in the leg. Walter Inman and Mr Watson made their way to a squatter station for assistance. A party of seven whalers, who were walking along the beach from their camp at Ladies' Bay, came across the deserted mining settlement. Soon after, shots were exchanged. Seeing some people a few hundred metres away in the bush, who they fought with, the miners, two of the whalers, William Cook and Yankee went to the bush to investigate. Within five minutes of them leaving, two shots rang out. All out warfare. The Tasmanian Aborigines set up an ambush for Mr Watson and his son-in-law, William Inman. The two whalers, William Cook and Yankee, stumbled into the ambush prepared for Watson and Inman. Cook dropped dead as a result of a gunshot wound through the ear. Yankee shot in the side was killed by a number of blows to the head. Samuel Evans, one of the whalers who was concerned about the missing men, organised the rest of the party to look for them. They walked into the path of Watson and Inman and concerned about the approaching men shot over their heads. One of the whalers who continued the search for the men stumbled across their bodies on the beach. The whalers and miners saw the party of Aborigines who killed the whalers on a nearby hill. They chased them, but soon lost sight of them. They returned, burying the bodies near the mouth of the Powlett River. Superintendent Latrobe had been notified two days earlier, the 4th of October 1841, that a party of Aborigines had robbed Mossy's Station at Westernport. Latrobe decided that some that same night to send troops to deal with the situation. Mr. Powlett, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who came to the attention, who came to the attention, sell off the. Mr. Powlett, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who came to Westernport to sell off the Aborigines' land to the squatters, and two police joined Lieutenant Samuel Robertson of the Twenty-Eighth Regiment, who had been sent to Westernport in early October to protect the squatters from Aboriginal attack. On the 10th of October, four days after the killing of Yankee and Cook, Rawson and Powlett were notified about their deaths. They left in an open rowboat, hoping to quickly find the Tasmanian Aborigines. By this time, 14 armed men were involved in the hunt for the Aborigines. After a fruitless day of searching, they decided to return to Melbourne to find Aboriginal trackers to help them in their hunt. On their way back, they called in to see Mr Westgate, westaway and his labourers, who told them they had been shot at during the night. that Tasmanians had stolen guns and ammunition and £22 in banknotes. Tunnaminaway, hoping to drive Westaway's workers from Westernport, burnt the notes, realising the timber cutters would leave their employer if he could not pay them. It took Rawson and Powlett five days by boat to get back to Melbourne. They cornered at the squatter camps they came across, raising the alarm about the Tasmanian Aborigines. On the 29th of October 1841, almost a month after the first raids had started, the Port Phillip Herald carried the first report about the raids across Dandenong and Western Port that were being conducted by the heavily armed Aborigines. Rawson and Powlett arrived in Dandenong on the 28th of October 1841 to meet up with a party of six policemen, six black trackers, Mr Thomas, the Aboriginal protector for the Melbourne area, a cart, a tent and a few squatters. The Tasmanian Aborigines had... The Tasmanian Aborigines had travelled from Cape Patterson back to Dandenong on the same day the search party arrived to steal more guns, ammunition and supplies from the squatters. On the 30th of October the Aborigines laid down the the gauntlet to the pursuing party, leaving messages at a station that they would not be taken alive and would fight to the last man and woman. By now, the police party had swirled to 18 men on horseback and six on foot. Fun and games. Powlett and his party, guided by the black trackers, soon came across the Tasmanian Aborigines' footprints the Aborigines had robbed a station on their way to Westernport, stealing two guns, pistols and a canister of powder under the nose of the posse. The following day, the party hunting the Tasmanians had swelled to 24. Eighteen were mounted on horseback. The Aboriginal backtrackers had been given muskets and pistols when they became increasingly nervous about following the fresh tracks into the bush. Hearing two gunshots, and seeing people less than 200 yards away, the party rode across what first appeared to be a flat, open piece of land. Within a few minutes, the horses were floundering in a swamp. They were surprised that the main Aborigines had not taken advantage of their predicament by firing a few shots into the sinking crowd of horsemen. Mr Hobson, one of the pursuers, showed some initiative when he mounted a tree and took a pot shot at somebody he saw hiding in the scrub. Surrounding the area, the posse demanded the intruders surrender or be shot. Imagine their surprise when one of the local squatters, Mr. Anderson, and four of his servants who had been shooting swans, came out of the scrub with their hands held above their heads. Anderson and his party joined the posse, as Anderson was one of the group which had found the murdered whalers four weeks previously. Somehow, this, or, this, 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 this organised rabble stumbled across the Tasmanians. Easily outrun their mounted police pursuers by fleeing across a swamp. The Aboriginal black trackers, concerned about their safety, refused to continue the hunt. Powlett and Rawson soon realised they could not continue without the help of black trackers. They decided to disband the group. Powlett returned to Melbourne on the 2nd of November. Rawson decided to stay at his station for a few more days. Becoming increasingly concerned about Tasmanians' continued presence in the area, he returned to Melbourne on the 8th of November, 1841. On the following day, the Port Phillip Herald reported that Mary, Chase, Powlett, Rawson and their posse were led on by the five Tasmanians. The Aboriginal protector Thomas, accompanied by three black trackers, continued to search for the Tasmanians. He located their camp near Westernport, Powell and Rawson organized a new hunting party. They met at Nong three days later. Receiving information from Thomas that he had located the Tasmanian's camp, they set out for Westernport, adding new persons to their posse as they called in at squatter stations for help. The inability of the military and the police to locate and arrest the Tasmanians had caused consternation in the district. Many of the stations in the Mornington Peninsula were deserted. Their owners retreated to the relative safety of Melbourne. On the 16th of November, Corporal Jennings and eight soldiers joined the new posse. The following day, nine mounted police, nine soldiers, four Aboriginal black trackers and six settlers, all armed to the teeth, made their way to the camp where the Aboriginal protector Thomas and four more black tractors were waiting. End game. The Tasmanians arrived at Anderson Station on the 17th of November. They waited till the men had left and then entered the house. Finding two women and a child in the house, Tanaminawe led them out and stood guard over them while Morbohina ransacked the house. Tasmanians took all the weapons they could find and all the supplies they needed. In all the raids they carried out, they never harmed any women or children." The men that were shot in the raids they carried out were usually shot in the heat of battle. They burned down the houses they raided to drive the squatters back to Melbourne. Although they hoped the local Aborigines would be inspired by their example, not one joined their little group. If it wasn't for the assistance of the Aboriginal black trackers who became involved in the chase because they were promised they would receive guns and provisions for their help, it is highly unlikely the Tasmanians, survivors of bitter and brutal 33-year war against the British in Tasmania, would ever have been captured. Ironically, the black trackers received a few trinkets and blankets for their troubles, although they had been allowed to carry guns during the chase. The following day, the pursuit party, which had now grown to 29 men on horseback, arrived at Anderson Station. They were confident, that with the help of the black trackers, they could soon overtake the two men and three women travelling on foot, who had caused consternation and panic among the squatters in the Dandenongs, Western Port and the Mornington Peninsula. The following day, they were camped less than a mile from where the Tasmanians had set up their camp. That evening, William Thomas, the assistant protector, volunteered to to negotiate with the Tasmanians. The rest of the party, believing the end of the chase was near, refused. Thomas' permission to negotiate. Soldiers, police, squatters and black trackers woke up about 4am on Saturday the 20th of November. They moved out in single file, armed to the teeth, hoping to win the Tasmanians' rebellion by daybreak. They walked about a mile through a lagoon and across sandhills until the Aboriginal trackers pointed out the smoke coming from the Tasmanians' fire that was less than 30 metres away. The party was standing on top of a sandhill that overlooked the camp that had been set up in the gully below. They advanced to within two metres of the campfire when all hell broke loose. The Tasmanians' dogs rushed at the posse. The Tasmanians tried to slip into the scrub amid a hail of bullets. Samuel Rawson, believing all the Tasmanians were dead, entered the camp. He found two of the women hiding under blankets. After putting handcuffs on them, he put a gun to their heads and forced them to call out to those in the scrub to surrender. A woman emerged from the bush covered in blood. She had sustained a superficial wound to her head, the only casualty from the 30 to 40 shots that were fired at the heads of the sleeping Aborigines. One of the men who tried to escape from the scrub was captured, while the other man who had made his escape, decided to return when the women who had guns trained on their heads pleaded for him to return. The five freedom fighters were handcuffed and had chains put on their legs. While they quietly awaited their fate, the ravenous soldiers, black trackers, police and squatters made cakes from the 60 pounds of flour and sugar that Simone's had with them. The prisoners were marched through the bush and arrived in Melbourne six days later. They were taken before the police magistrate, Major St. John, who took evidence from 12 witnesses. He committed Tanamir Mawahina for the murder of William Cook and Yankee, and the three women, Putarana Traganini, Planabina, as accessories before and after the fact. Judge Willis. The five resistant fighters were put... On trial for the murders of the whalers on the twentieth December eighteen forty one before Judge John Walpole Willis, in eighteen forty one, five years after the establishment of Melbourne, the first Supreme Court was housed in a temporary structure at the corner of King and Burke Street. Judge Willis arrived at Port Phillip on the nineteenth on the ninth of March eighteen forty one. Before Willis' arrival. Serious offenders who were committed for trial had to be sent with military and police escorts back to Sydney for trial. The expense involved in this undertaking gave Governor Sir George Gipps the excuse he needed to send Judge Willis, the most quarrelsome and difficult member of the New South Wales Supreme Court, to preside over the newly established Supreme Court at Port Phillip. To say Willis had a colourful past is an understatement. Judge Willis left many bitter memories in his wake. His first appointment to the court in Upper Canada in 1827 ended when facing a revolt by the locals. He was removed by the British Colonial Office. Using his extensive contacts in England, he was able to obtain and hold onto an appointment on the British Guiana Court from 1831, despite being removed from the court in Upper Canada. His attempts to return to the British Guiana Court after 12 months' sick leave in England, were bitterly opposed by the shell-shocked citizens of their community. Instead, he was sent to sit on the Supreme Court in Sydney, in New South Wales, in 1837. When he arrived, true to form, he took an immediate dislike to the New South Wales Chief Justice, Sir James Dowling. Judge Willis had a habit of sitting in the court when Dowling delivered his judgments, loudly explaining, Why does he not get his facts right? And did you hear the like? When the decision was made to open up a Supreme Court at Port Phillip, Governor Gipps took the opportunity to transfer the judge, who some people think cracked, to Melbourne. Governor Gipps was wrong in believing that sending Judge Willis to Melbourne would solve his problems. Arriving in Melbourne, Willis continued his sparring with the New South Wales Supreme Court, making decisions that challenged legitimacy of British rule in Australia. In September 1841, three months before the trial of the f- five Tasmanian freedom fighters, a local Aboriginal man called Bon John appeared before Judge Willis on a charge of murder, murdering another Aborigine. In 1840, the squatters who had established the settlement at Port Phillip were concerned about the large number of Aborigines who were camping on the Yarra banks. The Aborigines had come to the settlement to receive the rations they had been promised. In October 1840, in a show of force, Two hundred Aborigines were arrested after a dispute in the camp led to the death of an Aborigine. By the time Bonjon bon appeared before Judge Willis, the other 199 had escaped. Bonjon's defence counsel made the point that Port Phillip, having been appended to the British Crown by occupancy and no treaty had been entered into by the natives, they were not subject, nor had they submitted themselves to the British Crown. Judge Willis agreed with the Defence Council, citing examples in New Zealand, Ireland and the East Indies, making the point that Aborigines cannot be considered foreigners in their own lands. He ruled that Aboriginal law had legal force in Australia in matters concerning the relationship between Aborigines. Judge Willis ruled that he did not have the authority to try Bonjon for a crime after he was committed, against, committed he had committed against another Aborigine and set him free. Judge Willis's decision was overruled by the New South Wales Supreme Court in May 1842. The colonial government in London stepped in when Judge Willis stated, "My opinion, although overruled, still stays the same." The law that Judge Willis administered in Port Phillip was based largely on the laws of England. His interpretation of those laws in the Bonjon case was overturned because his decision called into doubt the legality of the British colonization of Australia. Legal Maneuverings, Part 1 Judge Willis, magmanity towards Aborigines did not extend to conflicts between the colonisers and Aborigines. George Bolden squatted an area near the Hopkins River in the Western District. When an Aboriginal man, woman and child, attempted to cross his, his property, to reach a camp set up by Aboriginal Protector Charles Seavright for Aborigines in the Western District. He attacked them on horseback with whips. Tatkia, the Aboriginal man acting in self-defence, tried to pull Bolden off his horse. Bolden shot him in the stomach and beat the Aboriginal woman to death. The child escaped Seavright's Aboriginal camp. Charles Seavright, sickened by what had happened, reported the matter to Superintendent Latrobe. Bolden was put on trial but was acquitted on the direction of Judge Willis. The jury, unhappy with the Judge Willis decision, told Bolden he did not leave the court without a stain on his character. In his reasoning for the acquittal, Judge Willis stated, there being no reservation in the grant, lease or licence from government in favour of the Aborigines, the possessor had also a right to turn off by all lawful means any person, whether white or black, who should trespass on his run. Superintendent Latrobe, shocked by Willis's judgment, asked Governor Gibbs whether the legal principle established for the case was sound and incontrovertible. He believed there was a manifest inhumanity in attempting to exclude all Aborigines from the land. Latrobe was concerned that Willis's judgment meant the squatters would recommence massacring the Aboriginal population. It might induce a return to the lamentable scenes of 1839. And the earlier part of 1840. La Trobe was alluding to the numerous massacres that occurred during this period as the squatters fanned across Victoria. Willis clearly stated that, unlike the Bon John case, the court had jurisdiction in matters of aggressions between blacks and whites. On the 20th of December 1841, the five Van Diemen's Land Aborigines appeared before Judge Willis, a man described by Governor Gipps in 1843 as an apologist for the cruelest practices by some of the least respectable of the settlers on Aborigines. Legal Maneuverings Part 2 If the defendants were unable to understand English or had been ignorant of Christian values, there is a slight possibility they would have been spared prosecution. Unfortunately, Robertson's civilising influence and his adamant assertions they had knowledge about the principles of religion and knew right from wrong seal their fate. Judge Willis always believed they were intelligent enough to understand court proceedings and didn't believe the humanity of the law that extended to an idiot or a lunatic extended to the five Aborigines standing trial in his court. In 1841, Aborigines were not equal in the eyes of the law. They could not testify or lay charges in the courts. The only way they could achieve even a modicum of justice was for a white witness to testify on their behalf. Considering the crimes against humanity that were being perpetrated against Aborigines were conducted in an undeclared frontier war where those squatters doing the killing were the only white witnesses, the ruling against Aboriginal evidence ensured that Crimes committed against Aborigines never made it to the colonial courts. Five Aborigines were executed in Melbourne for crimes against whites between 1842 and 1848. Only one one white man was convicted in court for killing Aborigines during this period and he only received two months incarceration for his crime. Considering the legal gun was loaded against the Aboriginal defendants because they couldn't call Aboriginal witnesses to speak on their own defence, or even allowed to tender an alibi. Redmond Barry, the defence counsel for Aborigines for the Port Phillip region, mounted a spirited defence on their behalf. Just in case, just in case, the name Redmond Barry seems familiar. The young Irish Aboriginal defence counsel is the same Redmond Barry who as a judge presided over the trials of a number of the Eureka miners charged with high treason in 1855 and who sentenced Ned Kelly to hang almost 30 years later in 1880. But that's another story. As a public defender, Redmond Barry canvassed a number of interesting arguments in Judge Willis's court, even arguing against the legal legal validity of the court proceedings. Legal Maneuverings Part 3. Redmond Barry began by arguing the defendants were not naturalised subjects of the Queen, and half of the jury should be composed of people not subjects of the Queen. Judge Willis scoffed at this novel idea and refused to grant Barry's request. The Crown Prosecutor faced a the dilemma that one of his main witnesses, Samuel Evans one of the whalers who had witnessed the whalers' murders had not turned up to the trial, wanted to drop the charges of murder against the defendants, as the only evidence the prosecution had was the defendant's own confessions. Judge Willis, in no mood to accept this argument, ruled the murder charge would stand because he accepted tragonini 's pre-trial confession that Tanaminawe and Morbohina were responsible for the murders of the whalers. As the trial progressed... Barry highlighted the evidence was largely circumstantial and the confessions should not be accepted because they were from people in a state of terror. He attempted to win the jury's sympathy by highlighting that what every settler in the colony knew but refused to acknowledge. We must remember the course of the destruction, at first insidious and private, then open and declared, which eventually swept a numerous nation off the face of their native country and transported the remnants to a foreign to them distant shore. Barry asked the jury how a people treated in this manner could be asked to quietly forget what had happened to them and, and be expected not to exact revenge for their dispossession and misery. He was attempting to get the jury to put themselves in the place of the defendants, hoping the very people who had been responsible for the dispossession and murder would be able to identify and sympathize with the Aborigines. As there were no white witnesses to the murder, the prosecution's case swung on the confessions of Morwahina and Traganini. Tanaminuwe and Putarina and Planavina made no confessions when captured and while they were in custody. Evidence which directly implicated Traganini in the murder of the Whalers was ignored by the court. The defendant's inability to give evidence or be cross-examined meant that the evidence given by Powlett, Watson and Robert Robbins, one of the Whaling Party, about Tuna and and Maubohina's admissions had a greater influence on the jury than it should have. George Robertson was called on to give character references for the defendants, who he had known for 13 years. He praised Tuna and told the court his conduct had always been exemplary. He told the jury that Maubohina, as... Long Holmes and backer's servant had accompanied them on an overland journey from Melbourne to Adelaide and back, and had saved Langhorn's life when they were attacked by Aborigines along the Murray. Robinson told the jury that Traganini had saved his life in Tasmania and made the important observation, "I have never found these persons wanting in humanity." Robinson sealed the defendant's fate when he told the court the accused understood the principles of religion and knew right from wrong. The verdict. In his closing address, Barry highlighted the circumstantial nature of the evidence and the inappropriate manner by which the confessions were obtained. He pointed out that not one witness could identify any of the accused. Barry urged the jury to acquit the defendants of the crimes they were charged with. Late Monday night, on the 20th of December, 1841, the jury came to the decision in just 30 minutes. They found Tannaminaway and Morbohina guilty of murder and acquitted Traganini, Putirana and Planabina of all charges. The jury moved by Barry's arguments recommended mercy for the men on account of general good character and the peculiar circumstances under which they were placed. The next morning, the five were returned to court for sentencing. Judge Willis discharged the free ribbon into Robertson's care and then addressed the accused. By the confessions of Bob Morbohina and the statements of Truganini, There can be no doubt of your guilt. The punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance, but of terror. You will be taken to the place of execution and be hanged by the neck until dead. Architectural Marble The site chosen for the scaffold was a small rise northwest of the building that had been built to house the overflow from Melbourne's first jail, the Eastern Watch House. The jail had four wards, four sleeping cells, three solitary confinement cells. Tunaminaway and Morbohina spent their last days in these quarters, hoping to cope with the cramped conditions, lack of sanitation, and the rats that shared the accommodation with them. On the eve of the execution, Morbohina refused his supper. Tanaminaway, on the other hand, ate heartily and smoked his pipe with the utmost tranquility. The next morning, Tuesday of the twenty fifth, january eighteen forty two, People began arriving at the gallows, trying to find the best spot to view the hangings. At 8am, the prisoners emerged from the eastern watch house, dressed entirely in white, including white calico caps. They were herded into a cart that, thankfully, much to the spectator's annoyance, had had cloths stretched around it to give the condemned men some privacy. Mounted and border police led the cart through the city to Gallows Hill. The Port Phillip Herald reported an immense crowd between 4,000 and 5,000 people, the greater part of whom were women and children. From the laughing and merry faces which were assembled, the scene resembled more the appearance of a racecourse than a scene of death. The walls and body of the new goal jail were literally packed with spectators awaiting the awful scene as if they were a bull bait for a prize ring. Tanamuwe calmly ascended the flimsy ladder. Morbohina was dragged up the ladder after Tanamuwe had reached the scaffold. The crowd, seeing Morbohina shaking violently on the scaffold, went quiet. The executioner fixed the nooses, pulled down their nightcaps over their heads and hurried down the ladder. As the preacher uttered the key words, In the midst of life we are in death. The executioner and his assistant pulled the rope. The drop only descended halfway and a terrible scene followed. Thus the two poor wretches got jumbled and twisted and writhed convulsively in a manner that horrified even the most hardened. The executioner's assistant did not seem to know what to do. A bystander rushed forward and knocked away the obstruction. Tanaminue died instantly. Morbor Hina's noose had become displaced, and he kept struggling for a number of minutes before he was strangled to death. The carnival mood that had dominated the scene before the execution evaporated. The crowd angrily turned on the executioner, who grinned horribly, a ghastly smile. On Wednesday, the 20th of January, we'll be gathering once again, as we have since 2006, to commemorate the execution of Bohina and away at the corner of Bowen and Franklin Street in Melbourne, across the road from the City Goals. The ceremony will be broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. We encourage you to bring your family and your children to this commemoration, which will last between 12 midday and 1pm, and at 1pm we'll walk silently to their burial site under the Queen Victoria Markets. Please bring flowers for the ceremony. Please take part in the ceremony. We are nearly there, as far as the erection of significant monument is concerned. The land has been allocated, the artists have been chosen, the de- the monument has been designed, and within the next six months, we should have in Melbourne the first major monument to the frontier wars that have that ha- that occurred in this country um, almost over 200 years ago. So join us. Wednesday, the 20th of January. You don't need to ring anybody. Just turn up at the site at the corner of Bowens and Franklin Street in Melbourne, opposite the city baths, 12 o'clock, ceremony from midday to 1pm, and then a march down to the execution site of the Victoria Markets. Please bring flowers. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community station, broadcast via the Community Radio Network. This special Tanaminuwe Moobor Bohina yearly commemoration is brought, is podcast. You can access the podcast from this program by going to 3cr.org.au. Listen in next week to our special end-of-year program on the anarchist world this week. Evil minds at plot destruction. <laughs> construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall This Week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national, and international events. Poisoning their brainwash my hands. Oh